If there are any of our youngest children that'd like to go to Stepping Stones during the sermon time, you're free to go. Scripture passage we're going to be looking at this morning is found in the fourth chapter of the first epistle that Paul wrote to Timothy. First Timothy chapter four, we'll begin reading in verse six and read through the end of the chapter, verse 16. This is God's word. Please give it your full attention. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. I still read the cartoons in the paper every morning, kind of a dinosaur that way. And there aren't that many of the newer ones that I even bother with, but I still love the classic ones. And if you were to ask me, what are my top two favorite cartoons of all time, comic strips, I would say Peanuts and Calvin and Hobbes. After that, drops off a long way. Those are my two, those are my favorite two of all time. And what's interesting about both of those two is that they deal with a child's perspective on the world. Both of them basically create a world where it's all about the children. And they view the world and the adults in the world through a child's perspective. And sometimes wrestle with some of the big issues of life from a child's perspective. Charles Schultz was once asked, uh, Charles Schultz of course was the creator of and only person who ever worked on the comic strip Peanuts. He was asked once, why don't you have any adults in your comic strip? And of course, the word adults, but they're always off screen and they talk like a trombone, you know, wah, wah, wah. That's the only, that's the only presence adults had in the Peanuts world. He's asked, why don't you have adults in the comic strip? And the first answer was facetious. He said, well, it's because they're too tall. They don't fit in the panel. But then he said, no, seriously, this was his answer. He said, adults have been left out because they would intrude in a world where they could only be uncomfortable. 
I just thought that was an interesting statement. They would intrude in a world where they could only be uncomfortable. Don't we all kind of long? There's a big part of us that longs to go back to that world of childhood where we could escape, lay aside all of our adult responsibilities, all of our adult struggles and problems, and go back and live in the simple freedom and naivete of childhood. We've all felt it. But it's even true in our spiritual lives, isn't it? In our spiritual lives, we often find ourselves wishing we could go back to our spiritual childhood. Go back to those days in the beginning, right after we understood the gospel of Jesus Christ and made a firm commitment to Christ at whatever age that was, at whatever stage of development. To go back to those exciting days where loving Christ and worshiping Christ and serving Christ seemed so simple and we were so fired up to do it. But now, in the adult world, the spiritual adult world, Obeying Christ, loving Christ, worshiping Christ seems so complicated, so difficult, so much of the time. You know, the Bible doesn't encourage that kind of thinking at all. The Bible does not encourage us to long for the days of our spiritual infancy and childhood. Let me take you just for an example over to Hebrews chapter 5. I'll begin reading in verse 11. This is a rebuke to professing Christians. It says, about this we have much to say, talking about the ministry of Christ. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who, everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, there's those familiar verses where Paul says, When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. The Apostle Paul never longed to go back to the early days of his life in Christ when he knew very little, when he knew in a very small part. And he recognized as he wrote those words, I still know just a small part of everything about who Christ is, what he has done and what he will do. But I long for the day when I know fully and I am fully known. I want to make a firm observation based on decades of serving in the church. The church in our culture, the church in the United States of America, is full of spiritual children. I say that sadly. People who are, may make a profession of faith, but they're spiritually immature. That's, by and large, the overall general characteristic of our churches in this culture, in this country. And that would be okay if we were a country that was newly penetrated with the gospel. But we're on the opposite end of the spectrum. We've had the gospel since the beginning. And today we are spiritually immature as a church. 
We are far too content with being spiritually immature. I just want to leave that challenge on all of you this morning. I laid it on myself as I studied this passage. We are far too content with the spiritual immaturity in our lives. And that's what Paul challenges in this passage. As Paul, in First and Second Timothy, these two letters, he gives God's word to this young pastor, Timothy, the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And much of the letters that he writes are most directly applicable to leaders in the church, to pastors and elders, the spiritual shepherds of the flock. And in many ways, it's especially applicable, most directly applicable to those who are young leaders of the flock, because that's who Timothy was. And he struggled, I think, with his youth and his inexperience. And so Paul tells Timothy in verse 12, let no one despise you for your youth. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Now what's interesting about that is that comparing what we know about Timothy from the book of Acts and what we know about Timothy from these letters is that it's highly likely that Timothy was in his mid-30s when he received these letters. So we wouldn't think, we're, we're expecting him to be like maybe in his mid-20s. But that just shows the difference in our culture. See, you know, in our culture, once you kind of hit 50, 55, 60, you're not respected anymore. You're irrelevant. You're, you're, you're shelved away. That's the way our culture treats, treats the aged in our culture. But that wasn't the way in the day in which Paul wrote these letters. The oldest people were the ones that had the most honor and respect in the culture he's addressing. And so Timothy's still a young man, even though people didn't live that long back then. Still, he was considered a young man as a pastor, an elder, a leader in the church in his mid-30s. But it's interesting, Paul tells him, don't, you know, let no one despise you for your youth. Now, I know how young leaders, I was one of them once, I know how you tend to interpret that. Like, if somebody disrespects you as a young leader, you talk louder, you get angrier, you get more demanding, get more assertive, more aggressive in your leadership. That's what you would expect in the flesh. To say, don't, I'm not going to let you treat me that way. But that's not what Paul recommends, is it? How does he recommend to respond to people disrespecting him in his leadership? He says, set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. In other words, earn their respect. Gain their respect by growing in spiritual maturity. You see, what scriptures teach us is that spiritual maturity is not necessarily related to your physical maturity. Spiritual maturity is not necessarily related to your chronological age. Wherever you are in your spiritual faith, you are challenged by this passage to grow through spiritual maturity, just as Timothy was. That's the way to silence his critics. That's the way to gain the respect, is to grow in his love for the Lord and his obedience to the Lord. So in this passage, Paul gives Timothy the keys to success in pastoral ministry. But please do not tune me out from here on for the rest of the message, because this is a message that's most directly applicable 
to pastors and elders. Because as Pastor Owen said a couple weeks ago, all the characteristics here in First and Second Timothy or anywhere else in the New Testament, all the characteristics that are given for what a leader should be like also apply to every believer. And so the difference is not in kind, it's a difference in degree. So whatever he says about the way leaders should live, the way they should see the world, the way they should serve, whatever he says here is true for everybody. It's just that leaders have a higher level of accountability for those things. And so I'm going to treat the passage that way. That whatever Paul says to Timothy applies directly to leaders, but it also applies, applies is also directly to every believer, everyone who wears the name of Christ. In this passage, he gives three keys to spiritual strength and vitality. Three keys to spiritual maturity. I'm going to warn you, there's nothing new and profound in this message. Please don't tune me out because I said that. <laughs> but that's one of the keys to maturity, is that the basic truths that you build your life on, you need to be reminded of those over and over and over again until you're made perfect. And so I'm going to remind you of the three keys, according to Scripture, to becoming spiritually mature. And I'm hoping that by looking at them again, you'll recommit yourself to them. First one is a commitment to feeding upon God's Word. Secondly, commit a commitment to hard work and discipline. And then thirdly, a strong sense of mission and purpose. First of all, the first and foundational key to spiritual maturity is feeding well upon the Word of God. Look at verse 6. Paul says to Timothy that if he wants to be a good minister, to hear from his Lord and Savior, well done, my good and faithful servant, if you want to be a good minister, Timothy, you're going to put these things before the brothers. And what's interesting is in the original language, what he actually says is, I want you to place these things underneath the brothers. In other words, give them a foundation. Give them truth that they can build their life and ministry upon. Give them a foundation. And so the first question this morning is, what is your foundation? What are the big truths that you've built your life upon? What are the big truths that determine how you live? What are the big truths that guide your decisions in life? Are they scriptural and are they the, the foundational truths of scripture or are they coming from the world what are these things that Paul says that he's to lay as a foundation under his listeners Paul goes on to say that to be a good servant Timothy must be trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed the word trained there is not the best translation of it. You really lose the, the, the nuance of, of what he's saying because the word in the original Greek literally means be nourished on the words of the faith and the good doctrine that you have followed. Be nourished. It, the, the, the verb that he uses is related to consuming food. Be nourished on the truth of the word of God. The food that enables us to grow spiritually to become strong spiritually, to become mature spiritually. The food is, as Paul defines it here, as he calls it, the word of the faith is the Old Testament scriptures, the revealed truth through the apostles of the Old Testament, 
and the teachings of Jesus Christ given directly by Christ and through his apostles, what we call the New Testament. The scriptures are the means by which we are fed so that we can grow spiritually. And Paul is saying to Timothy, if you want to be a teacher, you've got to first be a good student. You've got to be committed to digging deep into God's word. Remember the rebuke of Hebrews 5. In Hebrews 5, it said, you need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. We have allowed our tastes to be downgraded to the tastes of spiritual children. We are satisfied with milk. And I hate to say it, but it's true that in the churches of America, the reason there's so much spiritual immaturity in the pews is because there's so much milk being fed from the pulpits. Milk is important. But you need to move on to the solid food of God's word. And that's what Paul is challenging Timothy upon. I'll never forget, I talk about two conversions in my life. The first one, the foundational one, the one that brought me out of darkness to light was understanding the message of the cross and what Jesus did there and how it was relevant to my life and my sin and my guilt before a holy God. That was my first conversion and that was the big one. But then there was a, a smaller but still extremely significant one that happened about three years later. In God's providence, I was, I was not taught the word of God. I was not mentored as a teenager. I got saved when I was a junior in high school. Nobody took me aside to teach me a scripture. I just knew I, I, I wanted to know Christ, and I knew I didn't know anything. And so in my search, in God's providence, I don't, you know, I, it wasn't out of wisdom, but somehow he led me to Geneva College. And there at Geneva College, I was taught good, solid, biblical doctrine. Over the course of two or three years, I learned what we now call the doctrines of the Reformation, the doctrines of grace, reformed theology, the deeper truths that enabled me to see, you know, understanding those deeper truths is amazing how God got bigger in my sight. And grace flowed deeper. And Christ became so much more glorious as I dug deeper into the scriptures. Paul says that, Timothy, you need to know the word. Really know the word. Be a lifelong student of the word. And then he says in verse 13, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Having fed well yourself, then in the words of Jesus, go feed my sheep. Go feed the sheep of Christ's flock. Paul would later say in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebu rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Feed well, Timothy, upon the word of God, and then go and feed God's people with the word of God. That's the secret, not only to individual spiritual maturity and vitality, it's the secret to spiritual maturity and vitality in a church. Make sure that both milk and solid food is being distributed from the pulpit, that all of God's people might grow wherever they are 
in their spiritual progress and maturation. As important as, dis, as it is to feed yourself well, it's also important, you know this, in physical well-being and your physical health regimen. You not only need to make sure you're eating good, solid food that's going to enable you to grow healthy, you also need to avoid the junk food. You need to avoid the lies that portray themselves as truth. You need to, to get away from what Paul calls here, what he describes for Timothy, as irreverent, silly myths. Now again, it's interesting to go to the original language because um, I'm not sure, I think I, the translators might have been a little too conscious of modern uh, cultural standards because they, they changed, it's not exactly a, a literal translation. When he talks about irreverent, silly myths, what it literally says is irreverent old women's fables, old women's myths. That's a literal translation. And in our culture, we used to talk about old wives' tales, and that's really what he's talking about. I don't think he means to disrespect older women. I think he's just using a cultural term that would have been familiar in our own culture, old wives' tales. In other words, things that have been passed down by tradition and believed to be true, but are not true. Things that are publicly received as traditional truths, but they aren't literally true. I know all about this because my mother had a hundred of them. Growing up, I was taught things that I've had to unlearn since I was a child. First of all, I know now that if you pick up a toad, you don't get warts. My mother told me I would. She lied. But, but she believed it because that had been passed down to her. Even to this day, I have trouble swimming if I've eaten within an hour before I went into the water. And she had, she had dozens of them that had to do with catching a cold. I don't know why catching a cold was such a fearful thing back in her history, but there were, there were so many things I had to do to avoid catching a cold that I don't have to worry about now because I know that cold's a virus, you know, you catch it that way. Back then, it's if you went out with your hair wet, you're going to catch a cold. Or if you sat by an open window, you're going to catch a cold. Or if you didn't wear your coat, or if you didn't, went out, didn't wear your coat and went out with wet hair, then you're really in trouble. You're going to definitely come home with a cold. These are innocent, silly, wise tales. But when you up the stakes and you get into other things that the public believes by tradition that's been handed down in the public sphere, that people believe that aren't really true, then it gets a lot more dangerous. A lot more dangerous. Don't be intimidated by popular wisdom. And that's especially a warning that we in the church need to hear in this day and age. Don't be intimidated by old wives' tales, popular wisdom that is being handed down from generation to generation but is patently untrue. Old wives' tales popular wisdom about creation, about marriage, about parenting, about morals, about politics, about the future. Don't be intimidated by popular wisdom. Be well grounded in the foundational truths of scripture and dig those foundations deeper and deeper as the Lord enables you. Ephesians chapter 4 Listen to what Paul says. 
And he, Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. You see, it's the word of God that builds that foundation that keeps you from being thrown back and forth by every wind of popular wisdom and false doctrine. That's where spiritual maturity comes from. It comes from having a strong foundation in God's word. God's, tr God's word is true in every age. Always has been, always will be until Christ comes again. And God's word never changes. Unlike everything else around you. And remember last week we looked at the first five verses in chapter 4. And there is where Paul addressed an irreverent old wives' tale, a silly, irreverent myth that was being taught and doing great damage in the church at Ephesus. He, he mentioned it in two facets. One, that they were teaching that by abstaining from certain foods, you, be, you could become more spiritual. Or that by abstaining from marriage and sexual relations in marriage, that you could become more spiritual. That's the kind of thing Paul's talking about. But do you notice how Paul then nourishes, feeds Timothy to prepare him to be strong to deal with this silly, irreverent teaching? He takes him back to the doctrines of creation that he had already been taught. He reminds them, reminds Timothy of what's in Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 3. He teaches him creation. He says, everything, remember Timothy, everything created by God is good. And so that shows you how a strong theological foundation, digging deep into God's word, helps you to be spiritually mature and to reject popular wisdom that is false. When I think about that, it makes me sad that in the church today, we don't talk about creation much because of all the different views and theories that are out there. It's controversial. And so because it's controversial, we don't want to talk about it. And so we set it aside. And so how are we going to be strong in our foundation in the doctrines of creation if we don't study it in depth, keep pursuing it, even though we disagree? And that's about the beginning of all things. How about the end of all things? There's so much controversy and disagreement over how things are going to end according to the prophecies of Scripture. And so what do we do? We shelve it. We're saying we don't want to talk about that. I'm a pan-millennialist. It's all going to pan out in the end. Yeah, that's funny, but it's actually kind of sad that we're not even going to go there. We're not going to study it. We're not going to dig deep into that because it's controversial. Somebody in our first service afterwards commented to me, and he thinks, and I think he's right, he, th he thinks it's because partly, not only certainly, but certainly one part of, it, of the cause of this is social media because we don't know how to disagree anymore. We shout our opinions at each other in capital letters in social media and we don't know how to dialogue. We don't know how to sit down face to face and disagree with one another graciously and say, okay, this is what you think the scriptures teach. This is what I think the scriptures teach. Let's dig into the word together and see if we can come to an agreement. 
There is only one truth. There's not your truth and my truth. There's God's truth, and we just need to get closer to that. And we need to be an example to this culture that's forgotten how to have those conversations. The words of the faith give you the foundation to life and the ongoing nourishment you need to become spiritually mature. You can't skip that step. But knowing Scripture well is not enough, is it? You've got to put it into practice. You've got to learn how to apply the scriptures to your life. And that's where your sin gets involved and your laziness gets involved and it gets really, really hard. That's why the second step is hard spiritual work and discipline. Verse 7, Paul says to Timothy, train yourself for godliness. You can have the best diet in the world. You can have the most balanced Meals, faithfully eaten every day. But if you do not exercise, if you sit there and watch TV all day long, you're not going to be healthy. You've got to exercise. You've got to move. You've got to put it into practice. He talks about godliness. And I want to remind you of the importance of the word godliness in this letter of 1 Timothy. It is the key concept for the Christian life that, that Paul is trying to get across to Timothy. I can just illustrate that by how often the word is used. The word godliness here in the original language is used only 15 times in the whole New Testament. But nine of those occasions are in 1 Timothy. It is a major emphasis of this book. And godliness, to give you a simple definition for it, means reverence for God. But it's an all-encompassing reverence for God. In other words, when he talks about godliness, he's talking about a God-fearing life. A life that is guided, driven by the fear of the Lord. A God-fearing life. And don't ever forget, this is so important in understanding this whole passage. The key to godliness is the gospel. Let me take you back to the end of chapter 3. Very important statement that Paul makes there. He says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. I think in essence what he's saying there is, where do we get godliness from? We are sinners. We're under the wrath and condemnation of God. How do we get godliness in our lives? Well, the answer is, he, Jesus Christ, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. That's how you get on the road to godliness. The grace of God through his Son, Jesus Christ. We had to be forgiven, made new, recreated, given new hearts that desired to come to God and to be like God. And that is grace. As the old acronym puts it, God's riches at Christ's expense. All the rest of this passage is meaningless if you don't understand that it is grace that gets us into the game. It's grace that gives us the heart and the desire and the ability to pursue godliness. And then being made a new creature in Christ by faith through grace, then that begins the hard work and discipline of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Something we don't do on our own. 
Everything from that point on is grace, but that grace works in us so that we have to work hard in order to appropriate that grace and to grow and become spiritually mature. In Psalm 16, it says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. I have set the Lord always before me. That is not an easy thing to do. That is the hard work of discipleship. It's what the Puritans called living life quorum Deo, which is a Latin phrase which means living life before the face of God. Living with the continuous awareness that a holy God who sent his son to die for you is a thorough witness of not only everything you do, but everything you think and everything you want. That's the life of a disciple, and that is hard. It goes against our old nature, that nature that is dying so painfully within us. Paul says, train yourself. The word in the original language, and I'm sorry I'm quoting so much Greek today, but there's so much, so much rich uh, nuances of these words you find in the original language. The word in the original Greek is the word we get gymnasium from. Train yourself as though you're in a big spiritual gymnasium and go at it with the same hard work and discipline that those buff guys at the, at the, at the gym all, you know, that, that same kind of hard work. That's the kind of pursuit of godliness he's talking about. You know, when you watch the Olympics, you sit there like all of us and you watch the screen and you watch these human beings. They're just human beings. They're normal human beings like you and me, but they do superhuman things. They do things I couldn't even imagine doing with my body. They do it with such strength, with such precision, such artistry. But then they're always good in the Olympics to tell those backstories, aren't they? To tell you the, 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 the story of how that Olympic, Olympic athlete got to where he was when you got to witness him doing that on TV. Usually it starts about four years old. And they give up their education Largely, they give up their regular food, they give up their entertainment time, they make all these huge sacrifices, they put in 8, 10, 12 hours a day training, day in, day out, week in, week out, month in, month out, year in, year out, and after many years, 18 years later, you get to watch them do this. That's the kind of thing that Paul's talking about here. He's talking about athletic spirituality. If there's a phrase that sticks with you after the sermon today, I want that one to stick with you. He's challenging us to have an athletic spirituality. For some of us who've left behind our athletic years many years ago, that's encouraging to me that we still have the very real possibility of athleticism, but it's in the spiritual realm. Training hard, growing, maturing, becoming better at what we're called to do. But notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 25. It says, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. 18 years of giving up education and food and entertainment, working out 12 hours a day in the gym. What do they get for it? A little round gold piece of metal. Of course, and the reputation that goes with it, which is what they really care about. But it's all going to go away. It's all going to be meaningless much before they know it. 
Isaiah 40, verses 6 and 7 says, All flesh is grass, all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades. Scripture is always telling us to compare the comparative value of, of what we consider to be earthly, temporary health and strength and beauty to the value of eternal beauty, spiritual beauty, spiritual maturity, spiritual wisdom. And Paul says, consider the difference. Look at verse 8. While bodily training is of some value... Godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Excellence in godliness, spiritual athleticism is valuable in every part of life. There's not a single aspect of your life that wisdom from God's word and maturity, spiritual maturity, doesn't pay great rewards in this life. But that's only half the story. It's not even the better half. The better half of the story is that it goes on. You take, it's the only thing you take with you when you die. You take that spiritual athleticism, that excellence that Christ has built in you through your hard work and your sweat and your toil, you take it with you into eternity, and there you find perfection. Paul's point is that you cannot achieve godliness without hard work and discipline. And yet we tend to act like we think we can. In Hebrews 5 it says, But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Why is it that we don't think we have to work when we come to the Christian life? Why is it that we think that when we come to church we're supposed to sit in a comfortable chair and let people entertain us? I've had it happen many times. Matter of fact, I can almost count on it. When I teach a Sunday school class or lead a Bible study and I have a handout, so a printed sheet, and I start to pass it around the group, somebody is going to say, you're not going to quiz us on this, are you? Somebody always says that. And they say it to be funny, but the implications are actually sad. In other words, that would be unreasonable. It'd be unreasonable to expect us to really study for this course. It'd be unreasonable to expect us to really work at digging into the Bible together in our Bible study or our Sunday school class. And it'd be really unreasonable to hold us accountable for it. And yet we'll do that for geography or math or science. These things all go away very quickly. Godliness comes through knowing the deep things of God's word and working hard to live it out through hard work and discipline. There was a popular book for teens several years ago. I know I think there's some even in our own midst that are reading it now. It's called Do Hard Things. And I think that book became popular among youth in Bible-believing churches because it was so refreshing. It touched on a chord because for generations we've been basically entertaining our youth in the church to death. We're so afraid that the entertainments of the world are going to draw them away that we try to give them a Christian version of entertainment in the church to hold them in. But if they don't have a biblical foundation, if they don't know biblical doctrine, if they aren't growing and maturing in their faith, forget it. When they leave the church, they're going right into that stuff. Do hard things. Be disciplined. Be an athlete, spiritually speaking. Work hard. Sweat. Toil. Toil. 
The reward is immense in this life, let alone in the life to come. That's what Paul is saying. And finally, just like in physical fitness, spiritual fitness must be goal-driven. Must be goal-driven. It's a mission given to you by God. So I ask you, what do you live for? I know I ask that question a lot, but it's so foundational. Why are you here? What are you living for? What is your mission in life? To have more fun? To get more respect? Do you live for your degree? Do you live for your career? Do you live for your family and your friends? What do you live for? Paul says that believers have one primary goal. Godliness. A God-fearing life. That is your goal. That is your mission. The Word of God feeds it, empowers it, and by the Holy Spirit, you work hard to grab hold of it. Listen to how Paul, just, just allow yourself to hear the passion in Paul's heart as he writes these words in Philippians chapter 3, talking about his own pursuit of godliness, a God-fearing life. Listen to what he says. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And Paul says that and you think, oh, he's an apostle. That's the way apostles talk. No. Paul says over and over and over, imitate me. That's what's expected of every believer. But it's not only about your life. Because you're not saved as an individual. You're saved into a body of believers. You're saved not to meet your own needs, but to serve others. Because that's what godliness looks like in its mature form, is serving others. We're not to be spiritual sponges, soaking up truth and then just sitting there all soppy in the puddle of our own spirituality. That's not what we're saved for. The test of the genuineness of spiritual maturity is a passion for sharing the truth and life that you have known in Christ with others who desperately need to have it. That's the test of godliness. And the goal of pastors and elders is only different in degree from your goal, not a difference in kind. And so Paul says in verse 10, for to this end, and the end he's talking about is the growth of godliness in others that he is ministering to. to for to this end, we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Now that phrase is kind of troubling to some people. How is God the savior of all people? Well, we know Paul is in no way. He's on the opposite end of the spectrum from a universalist. So that's not what he's saying. He's talking about the difference between common grace and special grace. He's saying that God is a savior to all people in the sense that all people have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All people are under the wrath of God. All people deserve nothing but death and eternal separation from God. All people, every breath you breathe as a human being, as a sinner, is a gift from God. It's common grace, let alone every other good thing in your life. It's God's common grace. So God, in that sense, is a savior of all people because without God's saving work in common grace, all people would be 
banished to hell immediately. But we are driven with that knowledge, knowing the fear of God, Paul says elsewhere, we preach the gospel to others. We want people to know the special grace of God, the saving grace that comes from knowing who Jesus Christ is and what he did at the cross. And so spiritual maturity gets you beyond yourself and teaches you to love and serve others. And our witness is not just in our words, but it's in our example. Paul says to Timothy in verse 15, practice these things, immerse yourself in them like a good spiritual athlete so that you, that all, may see your progress. People should be able to look at your life and say, I'm seeing you grow spiritually. I'm seeing your, your hunger for the word of God get stronger. I'm seeing your ability to apply the word get more acute as time goes on. I'm seeing you look more like Christ. You look so much more like Christ this year than you did last year or five years ago. People should be able to see your progress because that's what spiritual maturity is. It's the work of Christ in conforming you to his image. And so I want to end this part by talking about Paul's mission statement. This is, this is Paul's life verse, I think. It's, it's, a, it's his most clear statement of what his mission was in life beyond his own godliness. Yes, he was called to godliness, but it was a godliness that was to reproduce itself in others. And he describes it, I have this written, one of my beloved congregation members in my church in Philadelphia, they did this in fancy print in an artistic way and put it in a frame and I have it on my office wall because I want it to be my mission statement as well. Listen to what he says. Colossians 1 verses 28 and 29. We proclaim Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. It's a great mission statement. And yes, it's true of apostles, it's true of pastors, it's true of elders, but it's true for every believer. That you are being made more godly so that you can work for the maturity of others that are in your life. So I just want to ask the simple question as I close again. Have you settled for spiritual immaturity in your life? Have you settled? Are you content in a state of spiritual immaturity? Or maybe you are more mature. Maybe you're even a leader in the church. But you've settled for where you are. You said, I've attained. I'm just going to cruise into eternity from now on. We are called to pursue excellence athletic spirituality until the day we die. That's the encouragement to those of you that are, that are in advanced years, is that spiritual athleticism is available to you until the moment you die. We all have a mission and purpose. This is what spiritual health and vitality and maturity looks like, as we've seen in this passage. Knowing the word and knowing the word deeply. Hard work and discipline to implement the word in my life and in the lives of those around me. And then to be on a mission to spread godliness through example and words wherever we go. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your patience with us, your perseverance in us.
Just like our rebellious children frustrate us in the slow, slow growth and maturity that they exhibit, you must be so much more frustrated with us. Father, thank you for your patience. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your faithfulness to your promises. We rest our hope in maturity and perfection on your work in us, and we need your strength to enable us to continue to fight the good fight. Help us, we pray, for the glory of Christ our Lord. In his name we pray, amen.